0: Book 9, Chapter 10 of the Rise of David Levinsky. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. The Rise of David Levinsky by Abraham Kahan. Book 9, Dora Chapter 10. One Saturday evening she said to me, Lord, you are so educated i wish i had a head like yours why you have an excellent head dora i replied you have no reason to complain she sighed i wish i had not gone into business i resumed i had already told her more than once in fact how i had been made about to enter college when an accident had led me astray so i now referred to those events dwelling regretfully upon the sudden change i had made in my life plans it was the devil that put it in my head to become a manufacturer, I said bitterly, yet with relish in the manufacturer. Well, one can be a manufacturer and educated man at the same time, she consoled me. Of course, that's exactly what I always say, I returned joyously. Still, I wish I had stuck to my original plan. There was a lady in Antomere who advised me to prepare for college. She was always speaking to me about it. It was about 10 o'clock. Max was away to his dancing schools. The children were asleep. We were alone in the living room. I expected her to ask who that Antomor lady was, but she did not. So I went on speaking of Matilda of my own accord. I sketched her as an aristocratic young woman, the daughter of one of the leading families in town, accomplished, clever, pretty and modern. It was she, in fact, who got me the money for my trip to America, I said, lowering my voice, as one will when a conversation assumes an intimate character. Was it? Dora said, also in a low voice. Yes, it's a long story. It's nearly five years since I left home, but I still think of it a good deal sometimes i feel as if my heart would snap unless i had somebody to tell about it this was my way of drawing dora into a flirtation my first attempt in that direction though in my heart i had been making love to her for weeks i told her the story of my acquaintance with matilda she listened with non-committal interest with an amused patronizing glimmer of a smile hugh did not fall in love with her did you she quizzed me as she might Lucy. That's the worst part of it, I said gravely. Is it? she asked, still gaily, but with frank interest now. I recounted the episode at length. To put it in plain English, I was using my affair with Matilda, or shall I say her affair with me, as a basis for an adventure with Dora. At first I took pains to gloss over those details in which I had cut an undignified figure, but I soon dropped all embellishments. The episode stood out so bold in my memory. Its appeal to my imagination was so poignant that I found an intoxicating satisfaction in conveying the facts as faithfully as I knew how. To be telling a complete, unvarnished truth is in itself a pleasure— it is as though there were a special sense of truth and sincerity in our make-up, just as there is in a sense of musical harmony, for example, and the gratification of it were a source of delight. Nor was this my only motive for telling Dora all. I had long since realized that the disdain and mockery with which Matilda handled me had been but a cloak for her interest in my person. So when I was relating to Dora, the scenes of my ignominy. I felt that the piquant circumstances surrounding them were not favorable to me. Anyhow, I was having a singularly intimate talk with Dora, and she was listening with the profoundest interest all the little tricks she employed to disguise it notwithstanding. In depicting the scene of the memorable night, when Matilda came to talk to me at my bedside, I emphasized the fact that she had called me a ninny i did not know what she meant i said dora tittered looking at the floor shamefacedly the nasty thing she said what do you mean i inquired dishonestly i mean just what i say she is a nasty thing that grand lady of yours and she added another word the east side name for a woman of the streets that gave me a shock don't call her that i entreated please don't you are mistaken about her, I assure you. She is a highly respectable lady. She has a heart of gold, I added, irrelevantly. Well, well, you are still in love with her, aren't you? I was tempted to say, no, it is you I now love. But I merely said dolefully, no, not any more." She contemplated me amusedly and broke into a soft laugh. The next time we were alone in the house, I came back to it i added some details i found a lascivious interest in dwelling on our passionate kisses matilda's and mine also it gave me morbid pleasure to have her behold me at matilda's feet love-lorn disdained crushed yet coveted kissed triumphant dora listened intently she strove to keep up an amused air as though listening to some childish nonsense but the look of her eye Tense or flinching, and the warm color that often overspread her cheeks betrayed her. Chapter 11. We talked about my first love affair for weeks. She asked me many questions about Matilda, mostly with that pretended air of amused curiosity. Every time I had something good to say about Matilda, she would assail her brutally. The fact that Dora never referred to my story in the presence of her husband was a tacit confession. "'that we had a secret from him. "'Outwardly, it meant that the secret was mine and not hers, "'that she had nothing to do with it. "'But then there was another secret, "'the fact that she was my sole confidante "'in a manner of this nature, "'and this secret was ours in common. "'On one occasion, in the course of one of these confabs of ours, "'she said, with ill-concealed malice, "'Do you really think she cared for you?' Not that much, marking off the tip of her little finger. Why should you say that? Why should you hurt my feelings? I protested. It still hurts your feelings, then, doesn't it? There is a faithful lover for you. But what would you have me say? That she loved you as much as you loved her? At this, Dora jerked her head backward with a laugh that rang so charmingly false and so virulent. "'that I was impelled both to slap her face "'and to kiss it. "'But tell me,' she said, "'with a sudden affectation of sedate curiosity, "'was she really so beautiful? "'I never said she was so beautiful, did I? "'You are far more beautiful than she. "'Oh, stop joking, please. "'Can't you answer seriously? "'I really mean it. "'Mean what? "'That you are prettier than Matilda. "'Is that the way you are faithful to her?' oh that was five years ago now there is somebody else i'm faithful to she was silent her cheeks glowed why don't you ask who that somebody is because i don't care what do i care and please don't talk like that i mean what i say you must promise me never to talk like that she said gravely during the following few days dora firmly barred all more or less intimate conversation she treated me with her usual friendly familiarity, but there was something new in her demeanor, something that seemed to say, I don't deny that I enjoy our talks, but that's all the more reason why you must behave yourself. The story of my childhood seemed legitimate enough, so she let me tell her bits of it. And before she was aware of it, she was following my childish love affair with the daughter of one of my despotic schoolteachers, my struggles with Satan, and my early dreams of marriage. Gradually, she let me draw her out concerning her own past. One evening, while Lucy was playing schoolteacher, with Danny for the class, Dora told me of an episode connected with her betrothal to Max. Was that a love match, I asked, with a casual air when she had finished. She winced. What difference does it make, she said with an annoyed look we were engaged as most couples are engaged much i knew of the love business in those days you speak as though you married when you were a mere baby you certainly knew how you felt toward him i don't think i felt anything she answered still i insisted you said to yourself this man is going to be my husband he will kiss me embrace me how did you feel then you want to know too much levinsky she said, coloring. You know the saying, if you know too much, you get old too quick. Well, I don't think I gave him any thought at all. I was too busy thinking of the wedding and of the pretty dress they were making for me. Besides, I was so rattled and so shy. Much I understood. I was not quite nineteen. It called to my mind that in the excitement following my mother's death. I was so overwhelmed by the attentions showered on me that it was a day or two before I realized the magnitude of my calamity. Anyhow, you certainly knew that marriage is the most serious thing in life, I persisted. Oh, I don't think I knew much of anything. And after the wedding? After the wedding, I knew that I was a married woman and must be contented, she parried. But this is not love, I pressed her oh let us not talk of these things pray don't ask me questions like that she said in a low entreating voice it isn't right i don't know if it is right or wrong i replied also in a low voice all i do know is that i am interested in everything that ever happened to you silence fell she was the first to break it she tried to talk of trivialities i scarcely listened she broke off again. Dora, I said amorously, my heart is so full. Don't, she whispered with a gesture of pained supplication. Talk of something else, pray. I can't. I can't talk of anything else, nor think of anything else either. You mustn't. You mustn't. You mustn't, she said with sudden vehemence, though still with a beseeching ring in her voice. I won't let you... May I not live to see my children again if I will? Do you hear, Levinsky? Do you hear? Do you hear? I want you to understand it. Be a man. Have a heart, Levinsky. You must behave yourself. If you don't, you'll have to move. There can't be any other way about it. If you are a real friend of mine, not an enemy, you must behave yourself. She spoke with deep, solemn earnestness somewhat in the sing-song of a woman reading the Yiddish commentary on the five books of Moses, or wailing over a grave. She went on. Why should you vex me? You are a respectable man. You don't want to do what is wrong. You don't want to make me miserable, do you? So be good, Levinsky, I beg you. I beg of you, be good. Be good. Be good. Let us never have another talk like this. Do you promise? I was silent. Do you promise, Levinsky? You must, you must. Do you promise me never to come back to this kind of talk? I do, I said, like a guilty schoolboy. She was terribly in earnest. She almost broke my heart. I could not thwart her will. She was in love with me. Days passed. There was no lack of unspoken tenderness between us. That she was tremulously glad to see me every time I came home was quite obvious, but she bore herself in such a manner that I never ventured to allude to my feeling, much less to touch her hand or sit close to her. It is as well that I should not, I often said to myself. Am I not happy as it is? Is it not bliss enough to have a home, her home? It would be too awful to forfeit it i registered a vow to live up to the promise she had exacted from me but i knew that i would break it she was in love with me she had an iron will but i hoped that this too would soon be broken there were moments when i would work myself up to an exalted religious kind of mood over it i should be a vile creature if i interfered with the peace of this house i would exhort myself passionately max has been a warm friend to me oh i will be good dora talked less than usual she too seemed to be a changed person she was particularly taciturn when we happened to be alone in the house and then it would be difficult for us to look each other in the face such tete-a-tete's occurred once or twice a week quite late in the evening i was very busy at the shop and i could never leave it before ten eleven or even twelve except on sabbath eve friday night when it was closed on those evenings when Max stayed out very late i usually found her alone in the little dining-room sewing mending or more often poring over lucy's school-reader or story-book after exchanging a few perfunctory sentences with her each of us aware of the other's embarrassment I would take a seat a considerable distance from her and take up a newspaper or a clipping from one, while she went on with her work or reading. Lucy had begun to take juvenile books out of the circulating library of the Educational Alliance, so her mother would read them also. The words were all short and simple, and Dora had not much difficulty in deciphering their meaning. Anyhow, she now never sought my assistance for her reading i can still see her seated at the table a considerable distance from me moving her head from word to word and from line to line and silently working her lips as though muttering an incantation i would do her all sorts of little services though she never asked for any all silently softly as if performing a religious rite i have said that on such occasions I would read my newspaper or some clipping from it. In truth, I read little else in those days. Editorials of the daily press interested me as much as the most sensational news, and if some of the more important leading articles in my paper had to be left unread on the day of their publication, I would clip them and glance them over at the next leisure moment, sometimes days later. The financial column was followed by me with a sense of being a member of a caste for which it was especially intended, to the exclusion of the rest of the world. At first, the jargon of that column made me feel as though I had never learned any English at all, but I was making headway in this jargon too, and when I struck a recondite sentence, I would cut the few lines out and put them in my pocket on the chance of coming across somebody who could interpret them for me. Often, too, I would clip and put away a paragraph containing some curious piece of information or a bit of English that was an addition to my knowledge of the language. My inside pocket was always full of all sorts of clippings. End of chapter 11, recorded by Sheila Blunt.